you keep your Bible open, brothers and sisters, it will be a lot easier to follow the sermon. It's a pretty big text, and I'm going to be kind of working through it, and it will probably help you to be able to consult the Scripture as we go through the sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever missed the bus? And if you have ever missed the bus, have you ever been happy about missing the bus? A friend of mine, a pastor in South America, was traveling overnight, and he had two options. It was the executive bus, which was air-conditioned, more comfortable seats, they recline a little bit, and it makes fewer stops, it barrels through to the destination. And then there was the cheap bus, which is kind of like a city bus, except you're on it for hours and hours and hours. Stiff, rigid seats, no air conditioning, stopping all the time at every tiny little town with people getting on and off with all kinds of things, live chickens sometimes. Not a nice option for an overnight ride. And my friend wanted to take the executive bus for obvious reasons, but he missed it. He wasn't feeling good, and so he was sitting there on that cheap bus, going through the night, very uncomfortable, until the bus turned around a corner, came around a bend on the road, and came upon an accident scene, and there was the executive bus lying on its side with dead and injured passengers strewn around. And then my friend praised the Lord that he missed the bus. Because he missed the bus, he could come home again. The Lord blessed him in his providential ordering of the events, even though at first glance, it did not seem like the best thing that could have happened. Now, every detail of his journey was ordained by God. And even the setbacks in his journey were ordained for his good to bring him back home. Now, human history is the story of God's children and their journey back home. Our sin drove us from the garden into exile, but the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went looking for us. And he takes us from exile, and he brings us back home to be in the presence of the Father. And as God leads us along the way home, even the smallest details of our lives are ordained by God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things, even the irritating things and the frustrating things, and the painful things, and the things we don't understand. This is the story of human history. And this great cosmic overarching story is reflected in so many ways and so many facets of our life. There are so many specific situations in the life of God's people, which are pictures of that great story 
of the universe, that story that God has written for us. And so as we look in the Bible, we see the exodus from Egypt, the journey through the desert, the entrance into the promised land, and that is a real historical sequence of events. But it's also a picture. It's a picture of man in bondage, in the Egypt of sin, brought out of bondage by the power of God, brought through the cleansing waters of baptism, guided through the desert of this fallen world until finally arriving home in the presence of God, in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the exodus is one picture of the big story. And the exile and the return to the land of promise is another historical sequence of events, which is a picture of that great story. In the exile, Israel's sin separated them from God, but God did not forget them. And in the verses just before our text, if you have your Bible open, you see verses 9 through to 20 of chapter 44, God is reminding them of why they were exiled in the first place. Because they went running after the idols. And in our, in our chapter, in our text, he's saying, my children, you will learn your lesson. Don't trust in the idols. They don't work. They can't save. And then verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob. I was forgotten by you. But, O oh Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Your sins are gone, blotted out. The clouds have been blown away. The sun has burnt up the mist. There are now blue, clear, sunny skies. And you can come home again. For I have redeemed you. I have paid the price for your freedom. And in verse 23, God commands the entire creation to rejoice. Because the entire creation was made for one purpose, God's glory, and to be a home for us to live in for his glory. And so the creation cares about what happens to us, God's children. Sing, O heavens. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains and forests and trees. Because God has redeemed his people. God will be glorified. He is sovereign in salvation. Well, how sovereign is he? Well, look at verses 24 through to 28, which shows us the sovereignty of God in salvation. Look at verse 24. God's saying to his people, listen, I gave you life. I fathered you. I am Yahweh. I am the maker, the doer of all things. Look around you. The heavens, the earth. Yes, I made that. I made the universe. I govern the universe. And then in verse 25, he reminds them, listen, I wrote the story of the world. There you are in Babylon. And there are those so-called wise men, the Chaldeans, that think that they know what's going on and what's going to happen. They can prognosticate and predict, but they have no idea. The highest human knowledge and wisdom is foolish lying and babbling. 
Because I have determined all of history down to the tiniest detail. And when I speak from heaven through my prophets and preachers, I speak infallible truth about the past, about the present, and about the future. Now Isaiah is preaching about a hundred years before the exile even happens. The temple is still standing. It hasn't been destroyed. He's preaching about 200 years before the return from exile. What God speaks through the prophet will stand. It will be established, whether he speaks about the past or the present or the future. Because God is not in time. Everything is one eternal present to God. It's not a big deal for him to say what happened in the past or what happened in the present or what's going to happen in the future. It's all the same to him. He sees all of time before him. In one eternal moment, he sees you. He saw you before the foundation of the world. And he loved you. He sees you now. And he loves you. He sees you a billion years from now as you rejoice in his love. He sees you. And it requires no effort. It requires no furrowing of his brow, no careful calculations and planning for God to speak through Isaiah what will happen in a century or two later. It is ordained. He has willed it. The book of human history has been written, every page of it, the entire plot. And God doesn't have to turn the pages to look ahead so he can tell us what's going to happen because he sees every page of the story at the same time. And so a century before Jerusalem falls, God is already telling his people, don't worry, I have ordained that it shall be rebuilt. You know who I am. I am the one who says, look at verse 27, I am the one who says to the deep, be dry. I brought you through the waters of the Red Sea with dry feet to escape the bondage in Egypt, and I will bring you through the waters again to bring you back home to the promised land. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. What's God saying? He's saying, I control everything. Air, water, earth, fire, all the elements of creation. Nothing can stop me from bringing you out of exile and bringing you home to Zion, the city of God. Because I am sovereign. Over creation, I am sovereign over history. I am sovereign over peoples and kings and princes. How sovereign? Absolutely sovereign. Look at verse 28. I'm going to take this great king called Cyrus. He hasn't been born yet, but I will raise him up. And he will be a pastor to shepherd you according to my purpose. I will use him to make sure that Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt. Now remember what that means, brothers and sisters, to be in the promised land, to be in Jerusalem, the city of God. 
is to have access to the temple, the dwelling place of God on earth. It is a picture of heaven. It is a picture of being at home in the presence of God. And God says, that's where I'm going to bring you back from exile. Now, God ordains the end result. And he also ordains the means to get to the end result. He leaves nothing to chance. Everything comes from his fatherly hand, everything. And so that's why in chapter 45, verse 1, which is where we are now, he even calls Cyrus a pagan king. He calls him my anointed. Now, anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. In Greek, it is Christ. If we were to translate this, in, or if we, not translate, if we were to read it in the Hebrew, it would be, thus says the Lord to his Mashiach, his Messiah. If we were to read it in Greek, it would say, thus says the Lord to his Christos, to his Christ. Why would he call a pagan king his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ? But if you look at Chronicles, Chronicles, uh, second book of Chronicles, chapter 36, Second book of Chronicles, chapter 36. Look at the, the very end of that book. The book ends with uh, an account of Jerusalem being captured and burned and the 70 years of exile. And then look at 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 22. That's on page 388 in your pew Bible. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Cyrus was the one who conquered Babylon. You remember that there was that great big party and the writing appeared on the wall and Daniel interpreted the writing and then that very night the Medes and the Persians took over under the overlordship of Darius the Mede. Cyrus was the one who was actually doing the fighting and two years later when Darius the Mede died, Cyrus took over the entire uh, Persian and uh, the, the empire, the Persians and the Medes and the Persians. And one of the very first things he did as the great ruler, the supreme ruler of the greatest empire that the world had seen until that time, an empire which stretched from the borders of India all the way to the western coast of Turkey, the Aegean Sea. One of the first things he did was to acknowledge God's command to set his people free, to send them home to rebuild the temple. Now remember, when Isaiah is prophesying this, it hasn't happened yet. It's about 200 years in the future. It's kind of like someone in the 1700s prophesying about World War II and the rise of Hitler and mentioning by name Dwight D. Eisenhower, the supreme allied commander who will defeat Hitler and free Europe. Every detail is ordained. When God says, I'm going to free my people, bring them back home through Cyrus. 
built into that proclamation are trillions and trillions of decisions of all types that need to happen for this to really take place. It means that Cyrus's mom and dad have to be born, his ancestors. They have to meet each other. They have to get married. It means that he has to survive the time in the womb and infancy, which especially in the ancient world was not easy. A lot of infants died in childhood. There are so many things that can go wrong in the womb. He had to survive childhood and he had to be healthy and strong and, and be able to become a great king and a great warrior. Herodotus, one of the ancient historians, even mentions that Cyrus's dad tried to have him killed at first. But he survived that as well. And all these things had to happen in his life for him to become the great King Cyrus of Persia, which is the ancient name for Iran, ruling the greatest empire that the world had ever seen to that point. But not just those things had to be ordained by God, but also every marriage which led to every birth of every soldier in Cyrus's armies had to be ordained for this to happen. The deposits of iron and the discoveries of them and the mining operations which produced the weapons of war that Cyrus needed needed to be ordained by God for this to happen. And also, look at verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hordes and secret places before Cyrus was able to take on the Babylonian Empire because his empire was from, from India, sorry, from India all the way to the, the western coast of Turkey. And underneath it in the Fertile Crescent is the Babylonian Empire. In order to be able to defeat the Babylonian Empire, Cyrus needed what you need in order to wage war. He needed money. And so before he was able to take on the Babylonian Empire, there in the western part of Turkey, in the area of Lydia, he was able to defeat, by God's providence, King Croesus. And you remember King Croesus because we have a saying in English, as rich as Croesus, the richest man in the ancient world, one of the first who minted coins out of pure gold. And Cyrus, in God's providence, was able to subjugate him and use his wealth to attack Babylon so that he would be the one in charge of God's people in exile and be able to send them home. But like I said, when he attacked Babylon, he wasn't even the supreme overlord of the empire of the Medes and the Persians. It was Darius. So also in God's providence, Darius had to die at the right time for Cyrus to take the supreme rule of the empire. And we could go on and on and on, but so many things had to happen for Cyrus to be able to say to God's people, you can go home now, rebuild the temple, and what's more, I'm going to pay for everything. That's how human history works, brothers and sisters. There's not a tiny detail which is outside of God's providence. Kings rise, kings fall, wars and catastrophes happen. God guides the big things, and he ordains the tiny things. And everything has one purpose, the glory of God in the salvation of the church. That's what history is all about, not just church history, the history of the world. The church is not a footnote in all of this. 
But world history happens for the church. God is sovereign over the universe and over human history for the church. The Lord Jesus Christ has been raised up and seated on the throne of the universe. And he's been granted all authority in heaven and earth for the church. Isn't that what he says? Look there in verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, my elect. That's why he's doing this. That's why he ordained it. That's why he's commanding these things. Now, God knows the kings and the presidents, even if they do not know him. God had already decided their name and their reign before they even existed God gave them resources to do what he ordained for the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel, my elect. When you read those words, brothers and sisters, there in verse 4, that's you. You can put your name in there. For the sake of my church, for the sake of my people. That's why these things were ordained. That's why these things happened. God moves heaven and earth, kings and kingdoms, to bring his people back to the promised land, to rebuild the temple so that the holy line of the Messiah can continue, so that the Christ can be born in Bethlehem, so that there will be a temple standing on that day when Jesus dies on the cross. And he opens up the new and living way into the presence of the Father, and so that there will be a curtain that can be ripped from top to bottom. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. That's why everything happens. And so, children, as you're studying history, and you study about anything, you study about the rise of an empire or the fall of an empire, or as you read the news, and as someone is elected to office or someone is cast out of office and replaced, you can say, with the scriptures. God did that. And he did it for me. Now, what is God saying to you? What is God saying to Israel in Isaiah's time? What is God saying to you today? Look at verse 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am the creator, I'm the governor, I'm the provider, I'm the sovereign. I wrote the book of the world. All creatures, great and small, are as so many letters manifesting my eternal power, my divine nature. I am the God who makes things. I am the God who makes things happen. And that's why Cyrus was raised up to create the greatest world empire ever known up to that time. God did it for you. Now today, we're often like the people of the Old Testament. We're confused and we're anxious. We're weighed down by our sins. The church Catholic is oppressed by the sins of others. Where she is not mocked, she is despised or cruelly persecuted. There are catastrophes. There are political and economic turmoil. There's an increasing threat of a global economic crash. Impending, growing threat of nuclear war and worldwide food shortages, shortages. And you can grow the list with all kinds of things that we can be worried about as we read the news. And we can ask ourselves, is is anyone in charge? Who is running this mess? 
Who can steer us through this? And God says, I'm in charge. This is what I have ordained. Look at verse 8. You know what I have ordained? I have ordained salvation and righteousness to be showered upon the earth, producing a great harvest. That is the end. That is the goal of history. And everything that happens is subordinate to that goal. Don't fight it. Look at verse 9. That's what God's saying to Israel. That's what God's saying to us today. Don't fight it. Don't fight me. I am the potter. You are the clay. My plan of salvation will advance every detail of every moment of every life. I have ordained for my glory and for the salvation of my people. And this is true of the greatest kings of the earth. And this is true of the life of the most humble child of God. And so, brother, sister, accept your role, your place in the great story of the world that God has written. That's what God is saying to his people. I have written what I have written. What I have ordained, I have ordained. I have set before you an open door and no one shall close it. The most powerful kings on earth, both in their most wicked moments and their most righteous moments, will serve my purpose. The wealth of the richest kingdoms of the earth will serve for the building of the kingdom of God. The Persian Empire paid for the rebuilding of the temple and for all the things that were needed to begin the work of the sacrifices again. That's true of great things, and it's true of the little things, that everything is ordained by God for his final purpose. If your body is broken by disease, or if you're inconvenienced by a red light when you're late for work, when you're mistreated or persecuted because you love the Lord Jesus Christ, everything in your life, big and small, is ordained by God and serves his grand plan to bring your, you home and to bring himself glory. We don't always get to see it like my friend did with the bus. That was pretty clear, right? We don't always get to see it, but we need to believe it. During the Soviet Union, the Soviet era, the KGB, the secret police of the Soviet Union, recorded sermons in one of the main churches in the capital of Estonia. I spoke with a, a missionary who worked in Estonia, told me this story. And so for decades, from the 1950s to 1990, the KGB used the best and the most expensive technology and recording equipment available at the time to record all of the sermons preached in that church. Because they were trying to collect evidence against the believers. And in 1991, the Soviet Union broke up. And suddenly, the church had decades of top-quality audio recordings of the preaching of the gospel, which they use now to broadcast the gospel on the newly liberated airwaves. And you can multiply those kind of stories. God uses even the things which seem to be setbacks to advance the kingdom 
to achieve his purpose. So God is saying to us, look, I've made clear who I am. I've made clear what I've done. And you've got two choices. Look at verse 14. You've got two choices. You either embrace the God of providence in faith, and you, in calm and quiet confidence, you walk the path he sets before you with all of its ups and downs, confident that everything is coming together for your good to bring you home. What will happen when you live like that? Well, you see it there in, in verse 14. The rich and the powerful of this world will fall prostrate before the power of Christ in you. They will recognize that you have a wealth that they cannot attain, that you have a power far greater than any that they can imagine. And we see that in the history of the church, in the martyrs, as simple young teenage girls died without fear in the arena, torn to pieces by the lions, with a fearlessness and a courage which the hardened Roman soldiers could not believe. And many of them were turned to the Lord Jesus Christ through that witness of God's people simply living calmly, quietly, confidently in his providence. When they see that, then they have to say, surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. So that's one way of living. That's one way of responding to God's providence. But there's another way. You can be like those who run after the idols looking to the created things to be your little pathetic gods. And what will happen then? Look at verse 15. God will hide himself from you, and you will be lost in your shame and confusion. And if you are here today, and you have not given your life in true faith to the God of providence, how long will you keep holding on to your little lifeless gods for comfort and for hope? Your credit card, your RSP, your stock portfolio, your great plans for your great life of great success with your great ideas? Are you going to obsess about your health as your idol, or your looks, or your reputation, or whether people like you or not? Or are you going to obsess about some specific relationship with some specific person that you need? Your career, your business. Whatever it is that you hold and carry as an idol in a world of turmoil and uncertainty, what anchors you? What comforts you? What grounds you? What is your rock? Where is your hope? What do you run to? What are you holding on to? Well, look at verse 22. God says to you, stop running after the idol. They know nothing, they can't do nothing. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Have you turned to him? Have you really turned? Can you really say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Do you know him as your father in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know him in the Son, the Word of God incarnate, the one who has been given the name which is above every name, the one before whom every knee must bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord? Child of God, as we live in a broken, groaning, corrupt, and fallen world, as we live in exile, there is only one way back home. Only in the Lord, verse 24. 
Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. He has written the story of human history. He has written the story of your life with all its trials, sufferings, with all its joys and blessings. And he has written the ending. That last chapter, which never ends. That we come back home. That we fall down in worship before the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we live forever in unspeakable joy as we worship him. Nothing, nothing comes by chance. Everything comes from his fatherly hand to bring us to that moment. And as you travel through the wilderness of this world, headed for the new Jerusalem, believer, lift up your head. Look to him and be saved. Say with the psalmist, send forth, O God of my salvation, your light and truth to be my guide and lead me to my destination, your holy hill and habitation where I with you will safely hide in shelter you provide. Lead me home to that time and that place when in the Lord all of God's children shall be justified and shall glory. Amen.